a cup of coffee, as I have
when that went out, the transmit light on this went off. Because I can see those lights from here. You can't see those lights, I can. So that's it's really strange. See, it's off right there. Brand new. God was So, what's wrong? Did you? It must be. We're fine during practice. Kind of messing with my headphones. I mean, you know. Oh, what's that right there? Said that. Anyway, it's like a leash now. Um, he does everything, everything himself that is needed for us to have eternal life. Only requiring that we put our faith in Jesus. The light up now comes back up that shows the interaction between the, the transmitter and the receiver. And then it goes out, and that's what is changing. See, like, doesn't make any sense. Huh? No, no, yours isn't hooked up to the system. That's going to be good. I mean, you. Okay. So God's love, not just about eternal life, it's in being paid for them. Jonathan will want us to see that God's love is also to put away some of our fears. God doesn't want us living in fear. I mean, that's what the enemy wants, right? The enemy wants you to be in fear of everything. Fear the future. Fear your neighbor. Fear this, fear that. It tells us that there is no fear in love. First John 4, 16 to 18. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. But this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So John's basic argument goes something like this. I'm just taking Marissa's mic. Okay, so John's basic argument goes something like this. When love is made complete or mature or perfected in us, that, that word there that, that's translated perfected in, in the ESV has to do with completeness or, or maturity. It doesn't have to do with perfection in the same way we think of perfection, like there's no room for improvement. Not perfection like that. Um, we, don't, we don't need to fear because mature love casts out our fears. So how do we mature or become complete in love? Well, he tells us that we do that by knowing and believing in God's love for us, by abiding in love. So how do we know that God is abiding in us and that we're abiding in love? Well, he told us that last week, verses 12 and 13. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, 
God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. So he tells us, this is kind of rehash from last week, if we are motivated to love other people, and we're experiencing the spirit in our lives, then we know that mutual abiding is occurring. When we're living in that kind of love, God is perfecting or maturing love in us. And when we're mature in love and we understand God's love for us, we'll understand how to love other people, and then that connects today with not needing to fear. See, in John's mind, there's really no separating, experiencing God's love and loving God and loving others. It's, it's all part of the same thing to him. It all comes together. In fact, after his point about love casting out fear, he reiterates that connection between God loving us and us loving God and loving others. He tells us the evidence of our love for God is our love for others. Look at verses 19 and 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not, he who does not love his brother and whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we also have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now this is the fourth, fourth time in John, verse John, he's used this word liar. He says in verse 10 of chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us because God has pointed out that we have sinned. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, if we claim to know him but do not keep his commands, we are liars. Claim to know God, but we're not trying to follow what he says. We're liars, John says. And in verse 20, uh, 22, chapter 2, he says if we deny who Jesus really is, we're liars. You can try to pretend Jesus isn't who he is, but if you deny that, you're just lying. But we know who Jesus is. Now it tells us if we claim that we love God but do not love other people, we're liars. His reason for this is that if, if we can't even manage to love brother or sister that we have right in front of us, that we can see, that we can touch, how, how can we claim to love God when we can't see and can't touch? We can't even work up some love for the person sitting next to us or for our neighbor. Yet we're going to claim we love God when we've never seen him. He says, no, we can't work that way. Now, fortunately, he also tells us that God loves us first. And so he initiates the process of love. Our love is a response to God's love. And he also models for us exactly how to love other people through Jesus. He doesn't leave us alone to try to figure it out. He gives us Jesus as the model of how to love. So think about that. Okay, we're supposed to love. I claim to love God, but don't love people I'm a liar. So how do I love people? Well, I'm not even sure how to love people. Well, fortunately, here's how. How did Jesus love us? He was willing to sacrifice himself for the thing that we needed most. Someone to pay for our sins. That's our model. That's the model in a nutshell. We love by being willing to sacrifice and give ourselves for others. 
And what that means is if we want mature or complete love in any relationship, we need to ask, what are we willing to sacrifice? Where is the sacrifice in our love? So maybe you want a better marriage. Who doesn't want, who, who's married that wouldn't like their marriage to improve? I don't know anybody, even if they have a really good marriage, that wouldn't go, oh man, I wish my marriage could get even better. That'd be awesome. I don't know anybody that would say that. I never, I don't know anybody that would say, man, I really hope my marriage just falls apart. This is the other half. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Then I'll have my revenge. Well, it's probably not what you're talking about. Hey, you want a better marriage? Stop thinking about what your spouse does wrong or, or what need or what want you have that isn't being fulfilled. Instead, shift to Jesus mode and love sacrificially. I can promise you that every marriage counseling I've ever begun, ever started with anybody, any couple, always starts with some unmet need or unfulfilled thing that one or the other wants. Usually they both have unmet or unfulfilled needs and wants and that sort of thing. But what's interesting to me is in the majority of cases, Almost no one ever seems willing to make any significant sacrifices to make things better. They might be willing to make minor changes, but rarely will people make significant sacrifices to make things better in their marriage. I know that sounds very depressing, but I'm telling you that's my experience after doing this for almost 30 years. Now, is that always going to fix things? Well, no, because you know what? The problem with every marriage is that both those people started out as sinners. Right? Two sinful people trying to work things out. But a lack of willingness to change the sacrifice is definitely going to lead to more trouble. Not helping. Maybe you want better relationships in your workplace. Okay? Maybe you just want to have a better working environment. So what do you want to sacrifice to make that happen? Most people think, that's not my job. I have a right to. And you know what? That is probably true. Probably true. Probably right. But mature love is not concerned with its rights or if that's its job or not. It's concerned with loving others sacrificially and then letting God take care of the results. So maybe the solution is to love the people you work with sacrificially and see what happens. Again, no, I can't guarantee your results. I'm just telling you what you can do, what I can do, what's in, in our wheelhouse to control. Maybe it's your children or grandchildren. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, of course I, sa I sacrifice for my kids all the time. Your neighbor, Marissa, makes me show up at the gym at 5 in the morning. But she, she, she doesn't really even care if I work out that much. As long as I'm there in the video or top set. That's my real purpose in my relationship. Is to stand there in the video. I'm making a sacrificial relationship. Sacrificial. What's that? Exactly. My icon is beautiful. Um, anyway. But here, let me throw this, con this out to your parents, grandparents. What about sacrificing all of your goals and your dreams for them? they can pursue what, what God calls them to. I'm going to tell you, over the many, many years, all sorts of people I meet with kids, including myself, so I'm putting myself in this category sometimes, too. You know, I find a dollar for every time a parent 
lives vicariously through their kids and tries to mold them into the exact mold that they want instead of God's mold, I could buy both Delvin and I brand new Petros for God. Isn't that pretty? Yeah, $24,000. Yeah, I know. That's a lot of money for that kind But real love is willing to work and shape them without making them fit into what we think they should have to do and how they should have to do every act and be. Letting them become the person that God wants them to be. But see, we live, we live in this rights-oriented, this self-oriented culture. Like a fish in water, we don't even realize most of the time what we're swimming in. But let's think about it from Jesus' point of view. Did Jesus have things he desired? Did Jesus not have rights? Didn't he have the right to be worshipped and honored as God? Did he not desire that his people Israel would realize he had come to redeem them? If you're wondering the answer to that question, all you got to do is read Matthew 23, 37-39, where he laments over Jerusalem. I would have gathered you. Yeah? Right. Did he not desire for there to be some other way of salvation other than him dying on a cross with all of our sin heaped onto him? You know he did, because all you have to do is go read the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you know that he says to the Father, if, there, you know, if there's another way, I would really like to vote for that one. But there wasn't. But what does Philippians 2 say about Jesus? Verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, that be us, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was truly also God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself by becoming truly a servant, being born just like men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is God in the flesh, but instead of demanding the rights that he had and getting what he desired, he gave all that up to sacrificially love you and I by dying in our place for our sins. And now he calls us to love others in much the same way. And John tells us that to the degree we do, the degree we love others like Jesus, our love is mature or complete and shows how we're growing in God's love. And it is that love, come back to our central thesis, that dissipates fear. Because fear and judgment are related. Verses 17 and 18. This is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Jesus tell, uh, John tells us here that one of the sources of our fear is, is fear of punishment. Now, he's not trying to tell you that's the only source of fear, okay? My, my fear of getting rear-ended on 12th Street on Tuesday was not about punishment. It had a lot more to do with vehicle damage and airbags going off and that, that nasty bruise you see people get when they, you get hit from behind and the seatbelt kind of comes across right here. You ever, you ever see pictures of folks after a car accident like that? I mean, I mean you're glad your face didn't go through, this, through the windshield. Man, that was a nasty bruise. So I don't want that. Although, there are issues on that business part, of course, I guess. Oh, 
But that's a different kind of fear. John's not talking about that kind of fear. He's not trying to give us a comprehensive fear solution to every fear. We'd have to go through a lot of other parts of the Bible to get that comprehensive solution. But he's telling us that God's love is clearly the antidote to the fear of punishment. And he connects that to the day of judgment. And there's two ways knowing we are maturing in love will eliminate our fears of the day of judgment or of standing before Jesus. First has to do with the assurance of salvation. One of the things the love of God and the Spirit do is give us the assurance that we are actually saved. In fact, if you think about it, one can pretty much say that every one of John's various tests are meant to help us evaluate where we stand with God and eliminate those fears. There's two things you've got to remind yourself about judgment. That judgment. First is that because Jesus has done the work of salvation for us, when we put our faith in his person and work, we do not need to fear ever again God's condemnation or his wrath. What does Romans 8 say? There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. What's the law of sin and death? If you sin, you die. That's the law of sin and death. What are you free? You're free from that. There's no condemnation. If we're in Christ, we can know that by looking at the various tests John has given us, our eternal destiny is secure. Perfect love has delivered us from sin and death. Don't worry about that anymore. You don't need to fear eternal death. You don't need to fear dying. See, I, I, I'm going to try to strap. I do not fear dying. Now, the process of dying, that I might have some fear about. The death part, I'm not worried about. But since I don't know what the process might involve, I'll admit that makes me a little nervous. But I'm not worried about what happens after I get there. But the other thing we need to understand is that that doesn't mean that there's not a day of judgment for each of us. But what does 2 Corinthians 5.10 say? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, you can debate if this is the judgment seat, if this what happens right after death when we appear before Jesus, or part of future events, or part of the great white throne, or whatever. I mean, we could have, we'd have to have three sermons on judgments if, if we were going to talk about that. It doesn't really matter. For our purposes, this is, that is not important. Here's what you need to remember. A life reckoning will take place. Every one of us will have a life reckoning. There might be rewards. There might not be rewards. Paul doesn't give us a, a, a strong description of how that life reckoning will take place. I don't know if, you know, if you're going to sit and get fast-forwarded through a whole movie of your life and be like, I don't know, see, you should have done this here. Why didn't you do that? Why were, why, my mind's going to be, even, Jesus is going to be like, why were you so mean to your mother? Right? Right? Mother's Day. Nice Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Good little flowers for you. I mean, tell me Flowers for all the ladies. Good thing, you ever notice if you've been here a long time, you notice that I don't 
make a real big deal of the holidays. I really just make a big deal of Jesus. I mean, not the world of the holidays. I remember you took a car and shit. That's, I mean, that's shocking. She probably thought she was going to pass out in my office when I gave her a car. Because, I mean, half the time I don't remember that. So I'm telling you, my, when I stand before the judgment seat, I, I already know what I'm going to be answering for. Anyway, the point is there's going to be a reckoning. But that reckoning does not have to do with eternal life or not eternal life, because what, what we are there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But there's rewards, there's lack of rewards. I don't know what else goes on there. So how does that relate to God's love? How does, that, how does God's love set me free from fear of when I stand before him and give an account of my life? I get how his love sets me free from the fear about my eternal destiny because my eternal destiny is with him. There's no condemnation. But see, if we've done our best to love as God first loved us, to love others the way Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, if we love sacrificially, then you know what? When we stand before him, I don't think we got much to worry about. Because love will have been completed in us. So it also tells me that if when we think about it, you sit, maybe this is your assignment for, for tonight, you know that 10 minutes before you fall asleep. If you think about your life, if I think about my life, right, and imagine what it's going to be like to stand before Jesus someday and explain myself to him, does that thought fill me with fear? Because if it does, maybe my love needs some more perfection. Maybe I've got some more so that love will become more complete in you. We need to let God's love in our lives perfect us and make us loving the way He is loved. And that's what He means when He says in that verse we read, just as He is, we are in the world. He's loving in the world, and we are to be loving. And using that word world here gives us the sphere of love. It's meant to be everyone everywhere. The marginalized and the poor and the immigrant and the person from the opposite position politically. Gotta love them all. The co-workers we enjoy. And the ones who drive us completely bonkers and nuts and make us want to smash our foreheads into the wall. No, no. no. The ones who particular sins maybe we find deeply abhorrent. I love them. The ones who are easy to love, like me. <laughs> the ones who are hard to love, more like me. All of them we love in action, right? Sacrificially when possible. Because God first loved us. And Jesus loves them as well. So if we love like Jesus loves, fear is really not going to be a factor. Because that kind of love assures us, first of all, that we're following Jesus. And that kind of love guarantees when we stand before him, because we're going to stand before him, everybody is, it will be a day, a reward, where we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of the night. Let's pray. Father, there's uh, a lot of things to fear in life.
But fortunately, we do not need to fear judgment. Either the eternal judgment because of our sin, because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, nor when we stand before you for our life reckoning someday, before your judgment seat, before the Bema, that Lord, if we have loved and sought to love well, we probably know that much more. We know we're not perfect, but we, we are growing mature in love. That makes a huge difference in every part of our lives. It takes away the fear we might have of what it would be like to stand before you can do. And perhaps we need to be reminded of that more often. I know I should be. That I will stand and give an account someday. Not in reference to my eternal destiny, but in reference to how I've honored and glorified and loved in this life. So help us to love like the Savior loves everywhere we go. In His name.